This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD history you deserve by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how China's Han Dynasty started to crumble? Or just how much ancient physicians really knew about the human body? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Another wonderful day for another fantastic show. How are you, my interesting friend? I'm good. Uh, tired this time, but we're going to pull through this pool. Uh, Patrick's tired today. Not sure why, just busy stuff going on, but I've always got time in the world to talk about history. and We've got some exciting stuff this time. That's for sure, Paul. How are you doing? I can't complain. I'm good. I'm always happy when I'm doing AD history. Exactly. Yeah, likewise. I'm always happy to do this regardless of my mental state. I'm always happy to do this because it's such exciting stuff and Things are really kicking off this time around, aren't they, Paul? They certainly are, my interesting friend. Now, it's time for our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So we are going back to China today on my end. And one of the last times we really talked about the Han Dynasty was all the way back in the first two episodes of AD history, uh, at least on my end. In those early episodes, I uh, shared with you all the ending of the Western Han Dynasty and the start of the Eastern Han Dynasty. However, a huge amount of time has passed since then. And by the 180s AD, even the great Han Dynasty was starting to wane. And this came to a head in 184 AD with the Yellow Turban Revolt, which is seen by many as the start of the end of the Han Dynasty. Before we look into this revolt and understand what exactly was going on there, we need to understand what the Han Dynasty was like in the run-up to this period, how Han Dynasty had come in these last way over 100 years or so. And something else we really need to understand is what exactly the Mandate of Heaven is, because it plays a vital role in all of this. So the Mandate of Heaven is something we did talk about all the way back in episode one and two, because it's just that integral to Chinese history and Chinese dynasties. It was a concept dated back to the Shang dynasty, which actually lasted from 
1600 BC to 1046 BC. So this is this is way before we, we started talking about history, that's for sure. This dynasty killed the brother of a man named Wu. And Wu felt this unwarranted murder meant that the Shang dynasty were not fit to rule. However, the Shang dynasty believed they held power through a supreme god called Shangti, and this led Wu to create the mandate from heaven, which was something of a contract the rulers made with the gods, and it it basically declared that a dynasty could rule as long as they were just and fair, as long as they were working in line with what the gods had in mind for them. With this unnecessary murder, it was decreed that the Shang dynasty had actually lost the mandate from heaven and it instead passed over to Wu and his family, which created the Zhou dynasty. And this shows us that while there was a hereditary aspect to rule in China, the mandate from heaven could perhaps be seen as overriding this sort of hereditariness. It kind of was a backup, a, like I mentioned, a social contract of sorts between China's emperors and the gods. And people could gain the mandate of heaven just as easily as they could lose it. It was a concept people could really use in different ways. And Paul, I believe you have something interesting to share about the mandate of heaven with us. This is kind of interesting. So the mandate from heaven has really very much been absorbed into Chinese culture, Han Chinese specifically being the majority here in a way that actually still exists to this day, if you can believe it. So, for example, naturally, recently, we've all been undergoing a a great tribulation across the world, and we've been dealing with this epidemic. In the case of modern China, on top of that, for example, this past year, they dealt with some of the most extensive and devastating flooding that they've had to deal with in a very long time. And there have been whispers, specifically because you can't outwardly state this sort of thing, that perhaps the current regime is losing its mandate from heaven. Mm. And and this is interesting because you'd mm. say, oh, well, you know, it's the Chinese Communist Party. It's uh, an officially atheist state. Yes, and that's definitely true. It's true of all communist governments. But you can't just completely remove thousands of years of tradition and custom and culture in the span of a little over seven decades. So this concept, though by no means formalized, but certainly one that has been hybridized and absorbed into a huge stretch of culture and history that is China, it still exists today and it's still something that does color current Chinese thinking. And I find that supremely intriguing. You're right, Paul. That is very intriguing to know that this sort of odd concept, I guess odd in our eyes, but it's just so entrenched in Chinese history and Chinese law. And so in reflecting on the mandate from heaven, let's look into how exactly the Han dynasty were acting by this time and deciding for ourselves if they had the mandate from heaven anymore. And Last time we caught up with the Han Dynasty, it was when the Eastern Han Dynasty was set up. While this great empire was something of a boom period in Chinese history, and if you look in the history book, so many great inventions came from the Han Dynasty. Um, it can't be denied how important they were. But by this time, things were starting to decline heavily. And the biggest issue of this was, of course, corruption. Corruption was rife. People were buying their positions of power instead of earning them in the more traditional way. Money could talk in the empire now, and the more money you had, 
the high position you could buy for yourself, and it seemed that power had fallen out of the hands of the emperor and into the hands of the palace eunuchs. And if you watch Game of Thrones, you know what a eunuch is, but eunuchs were men who had been castrated to serve a specific purpose in society. Normally, this sort of castration was a sort of symbolic thing to show that they were, they wouldn't be, how can I put this? They wouldn't be distracted by their natural urges. I guess that's a good way to put it. Well, one thing that is undeniable is that eunuchs show up in a variety of places in the ancient world over time. I believe the Ottomans also use them, specifically when you're talking about a given sultan's what they call harem and protecting them and ensuring that there would be no physical temptation. Temptation is the perfect word. and It makes all the sense of the world that you'd have a, a eunuch to guard your harem, but... That's a very different world from, from the world we know of today. Oh, yeah. And initially in the Hunt Dynasty, the eunuchs were guards and eventually sort of took on advisory roles. And from there, they kind of crept into the background. And by the time Emperor Ling of Han took the throne in 168 AD, they were pretty much the puppet masters. They were the ones pulling the strings behind the scenes. Oh, I say behind the scenes, but the people of China grew tired of this corruption from the Han Dynasty, and this first came ahead in the Five Pecks of Rice Rebellion in 142 AD, and the people of this rebellion declared the Han Dynasty had lost the mandate from heaven because of their corruption. Like I said, that all-important mandate from heaven, you could just sort of throw it out there and claim it. It's such an interesting concept that everyone could use. You could use it to solidify your power, or you could use it as an opposition to try and overthrow power and that's what these uh this five pecks of rice rebellion were trying to do and this rebellion led to a group of people actually starting a separate state in the land that wouldn't be disbanded until 215 ad and it's just interesting stuff here to see this mandate of heaven being used like this you know it certainly is and something that seems to be a constant and reoccurring theme throughout history that permeates in just such an incredibly significant way, is this concept of corruption. This idea that so many of these great powers, maybe some people are just using it as a catch-all phrase, but I think we all generally understand what we mean by corruption. I think they would have understood it in a very similar way. And it always seems to be wrapped in with the these declines of these major powers. This is something that just keeps coming again and again <laughs> and again. And I often wonder, is it mere correlation or is it also causation that this is often the case? Or, uh, you know, not to be terribly cynical here, Patrick, but are humans on the whole inherently corrupt? <laughs> That's a huge question. Yeah. But I mean... It, does give you moments of pause when you say to yourself, this keeps popping back up. Is it just a matter of pure self-interest opportunity and, and the circumstances that surround it? You know, yeah, of course, but it seems to keep happening in almost regardless of the culture that it's happening in. Yeah, like it's very valid point when you mention it like this. This is something we see, we've already seen in the past with AD history, it's something we're going to see a hell of a lot of in the future with AD history it, it, it sucks it's really annoying basically to sort of like just see oh god damn another person got corrupted 
oh, another empire that sounded really good got corrupted. It's just, they don't want to say humans are fundamentally corrupt because there are some good people, but it just seems there's more, I would say there's a correlation between that people who seek power are more likely to get corrupted. Like, do you think someone who isn't seeking power would get corrupted? It's such a whole sort of, it's a whole different sort of philosophical question that, Paul, but it's definitely a great uh, notice that this corruption is so rife and so continuously happening regardless of what's going on where and when oh yeah definitely so that's just something i want to throw in there because it's just it's one of those things where you can't just take it for granted okay they were having corruption then you move on to the next idea the next Mm. sentence you have to stop and you have to ask yourself okay what's happening here and why and it brings up some really difficult questions that we are not equipped with the time to begin to adequately address but it's something for you listening wherever you may be to give greater consideration to. Yeah, perfectly. Why Why are so many of these powers ran by people who are going to become corrupt? That That's a good question you guys can think about. And, and let us know maybe in the comments, who knows. But even though we had the five pecks of rice and they kind of did their own thing, there was a following rebellion. And this is the Yellow Turban Rebellion, who we've talked about. They're the focal point of my segment today. And they were also known as the Yellow Scarf Rebellion, depending on the translation. And this is basically because they wore yellow headgear wrapped around their heads and necks sort of area. So not the most creative way, but it's a way to name people. And they were founded by a man called, and apologies for pronunciation on this one, Zhang Zhao, he and his two brothers were healers who treated people from the peasantry for free. And this is a pretty thankless thing to do, a very good altruistic thing to do, to treat people who couldn't afford it otherwise. And it was while treating the peasantry for free, they just saw the suffering of common people and they just sort of looked, they compared that to the government who did nothing to help these people. And this corruption came to a breaking point in 184 AD when Zhang Zhao and his brothers started the Yellow Turban Rebellion. He was a charismatic leader and this began as just a local revolt in his area, but it soon spread nationwide across the entire dynasty and country. And much like the five pecks of rice rebellion before them, the Yellow Turbans too believed that the Han Dynasty had lost that all-important mandate from heaven. There it is once again. It's so important to this period of Chinese history. If you if you ever felt the empire were wrong, you kind of had a backup plan to declare this mandate from heaven to say, yo, remember this? It's just it was it was a great sort of thing to have, I guess, in the arsenal of any rebellion. Like I said, it was a very malleable concept. And the Yellow Turbans pointed to the Han Dynasty and they they did all kinds of things to try and prove that the Han Dynasty had lost the mandate from heaven. And what, what one of the more interesting things was their use of colour. So traditionally, the Han Dynasty used blue as their official colour. And this, this represented like the heavens and God think the sky's blue. And that represented that. However, in these waning years of the Han Dynasty, they started to use red an awful lot more. And of course, red is a colour with a lot more corrupt connotation, fire and blood. That's all sort of red things. And the yellow turbans thought because the Han Dynasty were using more red than blue, that was a point to show, hey, they've lost the mandate from heaven. Look, they're they're using the evil colour now. That's not good. This is interesting because we we see this, first off, when it comes to Han Chinese culture, the concept of face and the concept of symbolism is deeply 
significant in a way that cannot be overstated. Symbolism and demonstration of symbolism goes a very long way to how they interpret the world and how they express their ideas. And something that's also still true to this day is they have, at least the way it translates into English, Hmm. is that it's amazing to me the descriptors they have in their histories for these various groups. So Mm. let's go let's go back to something we've covered before, before the Yellow Turban Rebellion. Remember the red eyebrows that were so (sighs) instrumental in the end of Wong Mong? Same kind of idea is playing out there. And it's very poetic. And it gives you an incredible, very human insight into how they're interpreting the world and what's happening around their motivations. All of these things, I find that utterly incredible. But surely, and this is a question I have for you, surely is the change of color the most that they pulled off? To me, significant or not in symbolism, the question is, what are the palpable changes, the improvements not just the change of color that they might have done. Do you know if they did anything else? I'm sure they did other things. Obviously, the empire as a whole was starting to do more corrupt things. And I guess the change of color was just the icing on the cake, the cherry on top. It was just an extra thing to prove that the Han Dynasty were now evil because they were using red. Something else which is maybe just as important as the uh, mandate from heaven, from the heavens is another concept called Jarji. And uh, this means a value or worth. And it was believed everyone in China had a certain level of zhaji, which meant an essential worth and value. And the Han dynasty had always claimed to care for everyone's zhaji, but clearly this wasn't the case anymore. And it was zhaji the yellow turbans were fighting for. They wanted everyone to be equally respected and valued. It's it's this age of, you know, it's just, it, you could see this with so many other revolutions and rebellions in the past. It's fighting for the common person from the corrupt higher ups. It's just another great example of that. And how did this rebellion actually go down once things started to kick off? Well, Zhang Zhao's popularity and the collective idea to restore the Zhaji of the people grew the rebellion to massive sizes. And the Yellow Turbans wanted peace for all. That was their main name. They wanted peace. But like so often in history, they realized that to get peace, they had to use force. Yeah, you cannot have peace without preparing for war. Yeah, basically. Kind of oxymoronic, but that's a lot of history. That's a lot of humanity. Exactly. And the hands did try to suppress these rebellions, but they just kept on propping up so quickly that they struggled with it. And also by this time in the Han Dynasty's reign, various nomadic tribes actually carved up the kingdom to an extent that just made it hard to get around everywhere. And the Han tried to raise an army, but the yellow turbans just grew and grew and they made easy work of a few Hun generals. But then a man by the name of Cao Cao uh, came about on the scene and Cao Cao was one of China's greatest generals. He had like a reputation as a fierce warlord, but he was also known as a poet. So he was just as like, he was brains and bronze. He's a really interesting figure and he came onto the scene here. And despite only being a general, 
Cao Cao wielded enormous power because Emperor Ling allowed each region to tackle the yellow turbans in their own specific way. And this is quite a big thing at the time. Normally, the emperor just gave generic instructions for all of China to follow and all the generals and army had to follow this one instruction of how to deal with, with rebellion. But because the yellow turbans were so widespread and doing different things in different places, Emperor Ling decided, hey, there's not one way to deal with this. Let's divide up power you guys deal with these rebellions how you best see fit. So that meant Cao Cao could be left to his own devices. And as the fierce, poetic man he was, he dealt with it all quickly. And while the bulk of the rebellion took place in 184 AD, it actually lasted many years after. It was actually in this year that the rebellion's leader of Zhang Zhao was killed. So basically, mainly happened in just this year, but it did it did have a lasting effect and it carried on quite a bit longer down the line until 189 AD. And in 189 AD, Emperor Ling himself died. And this was a death from illness. He wasn't killed by the rebellion by any means. And it seems that despite the rebellion, Ling carried on with corruption. So it could be argued that this rebellion was all for nothing to some extent. And what we know, however, is that despite this rebellion might have seemed futile, Ling was the last proper emperor of the Han dynasty. Uh, following him was his young sort of infant son, which we've seen in the past before. Infants as kings uh, never really go too well, as we know. And over the next few years, the dynasty would truly crumble. But considering Ling died in 189 AD, that means we can look into what happened next in our next episode, which is, a, I think, is a really truly fitting season finale. Is obviously by the next episode, we are going to be at 200 AD. So find out what happens in our season finale. Just to add a bit of spice it up there. <laughs> That's beautiful. I, lo- I love how there's a cliffhanger going into the exactly. season finale. Exactly. True Game of Thrones style. Yeah. Uh, totally. And, you know, it's interesting because we're, we're finally seeing the Han Dynasty come apart. Right. These guys Mm. were so incredibly durable that they, in fact, have two halves. They overcame a usurper halfway through effectively, Mm. and they returned to prominence and power and managed to create some kind of stabilization for 150 to 200 years, which is awfully impressive, if I say so myself. Mm. Once again, this is something we've kind of touched upon here and there. And it's true, it just because China is such an incredible sweep of civilization, its history is so ancient and so wide-ranging that you really can kind of begin to see certain patterns emerge. And in these patterns, naturally, is just the rise and fall of dynasties. That's kind of how they become, it's kind of how they begun interpreting their greater history. And we've mentioned this in this podcast before, Patrick. Mm which is, of course, they even see the current ruling power as just another dynasty in a line of many, many dynasties. They must have such a sort of, I guess maybe a fear, like they clearly know for their history, these things end. Dynasties coming to an end is such a baked in part of the Chinese collective knowledge that maybe, like you said, can't really talk about it, but there might be a waning of power, a loss of mandate from heaven from the current rulers of China, perhaps they think this is the end of our dynasty, but it's something they must be aware of because it's happened so much in their history. I might have mentioned this quote in our podcast. It's an old AJP Taylor quote that I've always loved. 
mm. which is never ask historians to predict the future. We have enough trouble predicting the past. Yes, it's, yeah. We're somewhat handicapped by that, of course, because humans are inherently myopic. <laughs> you know, we can't yeah. see the future. Clairvoyance is, is a rare gift, and sometimes it's simply a <laughs> rare curse. Nothing good, nothing, <laughs> there's very little good that can come from accurately predicting the future at times. No. But we also have this issue with the past, right? Because you can have two people that were in the same place and come away with completely different interpretations mm. or recollections of what happened. And even if you had a camera in the room, you still would have issues. And then if you had that, then, of course, you'd have to have lawyers come in and determine what really happened. <laughs> what you know, really right? happened. So mm. here's my first question to you, Patrick. Mm. As far as their motivations are concerned, they seem a bit nebulous. I mean, I get the general idea of what's going on here. But do you know some more of their specific gripes in terms of what? the Yellow Turban Rebellion was expecting and what the people were expecting of them. We talk about them being corrupt, fair enough. But what was it that they wanted outside of peace? Because clearly there was an expectation, I would have to imagine, beyond simply, not to use a current phrase, but forever war. Mm. What is it that they expected from their Han Dynasty rulers that they weren't getting? Do, do we have more specifics? The only thing that really came to light for me in my research was this whole concept of a uh, jaji, which was like making sure everyone was worth and valued, like equally. Uh, that seems to be one of the key things they were fighting for. As I said, they were doctors, healers, medics working for free on uh, China's peasantry, and they just realized how unfairly they were being treated realized how well off and how little the uh, dynasty were doing to help with that. And from what I could tell, they just wanted to change that. They wanted it so everyone would be treated equally, whether that be the Hun dynasty doing it themselves, or they over... I don't know if they wanted to overtake or just reform the dynasty. I'm not too sure, but they just wanted... They wanted a better life for everyone in China. That seems to have been their main goal, and I thought the Hun dynasty wasn't giving people that life. In terms of this particular rebellion, based on your historical analysis, mm. even though the uprising itself wasn't successful and it didn't amount to much at the time, mm. to what degree did it truly contribute in the greater scale of the ending of the Han Dynasty? How much did it really crack the foundation of that particular ruling dynasty in china so forgive me if i'm wrong the following episode obviously is going to be a follow-up to this and i haven't researched as deeply into what happened next but i did some preliminary research into what comes next and it seems one of the big factors you remember i said about how emperor ling allowed separate regions to control this in their own way. Yeah. Obviously, that was due to the Yellow Turban Rebellion. And the next phase in Chinese history is the Three Kingdoms. That's three separate places with their own degree of power. I believe there might be a correlation between Emperor Ling giving these various regions their own amount degree of power and then the Han Dynasty becoming various places with various degrees of power. I believe there's a bit of a link there. Like I said, I haven't done the full research, but I believe by giving that power to the regions, Emperor Ling kind of set in motion the next period of China's history, and that was because of the Yellow Turban Rebellion. 
Something else that's interesting here is because the territory that was under Han Chinese effective control is mm. is is enormous. It's not as mm. big as what we know as mainland China today, but it's still considerable. No, Ch- China's massive today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting is that, of course, in terms of the military, they were spread rather thin. Mm. And somebody that's becoming a player on the scene, and it's my greatest hope that we'll end up getting into this in the not-too-distant future episodes as we begin to expand the scope of our world history, because, of course, this is a huge anthology, AD history. Mm -hmm. You have to take it in many volumes. Mm -hmm. No one episode or no one season or seasons are representative of the whole. We're weaving Mm. this tapestry. And something that's interesting is that in this time, when this is all happening, and when the Han Dynasty has its attention very much inwardly focused— they actually get into a brief military conflict with <laughs> one of the major Korean. Of course, there's the Korean kingdoms. Yes, and they ended up taking a nice little chunk of land out of today, what we would call Manchuria. So they have a lot of pots boiling all at once. It's, it's such a big picture. There's so much going on. Everything affects something else. That's the that's the true beauty and complexity and attraction into studying grand strategy. And in this case, you can be inwardly focused, but you have these existential threats that are beginning to clip away at them as well. We're going to see this all continue to evolve Mm -hmm. in a very intriguing fashion. And on top of that, this has been kind of a thing now for a while when it comes to the Han Dynasty. You've been kind of seeing it on the decline. And we're beginning to see, even after the fall of the Western Han Dynasty and the Wangmong and the Shane Dynasty, they spent a lot of time trying to recoup their losses. Like, for example, the reconquest of the Tarim Basin, that hook arm out there for caravans that were established on Silk Highway routes. But they never truly fully recover from this. And so they've been in decline for quite some time. And the way things are looking, not to spoil anything... <laughs> is, well, we're going to get a landing that is not exactly pitch perfect. No, but that, that's all for next time, Paul, or at least in the future anyway. <laughs> Don't want to give away too much. Part two next time. Us here, yes. you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Thank you, Anna Domini. Patrick, we are now on to our Patreon submitted question segment. And if you are a patron of the AD History Podcast and donate on the $5 tier or higher per month, you have, among many other benefits, the ability to submit a question that Patrick and I will choose at random to answer in our middle segment. And it can be anything about history, anything we covered, anything that's coming up, anything about Patrick or myself and our professional work, we all consider that inbounds, or even anything about the show like we did last time. How do we record the thing? How What goes in the episode? All of that is inbounds. And there's no doubt how much you and your contributions and you who have done it already have helped the show. We want your help in creating the AD History Podcast you deserve, and it is immeasurable. 
without a doubt. We could not do this without you. And we encourage you to go to patreon.com slash 80 history podcast to learn more and to contribute and become a part of Field Marshal Odo's Adiophyte Army because you Adiophytes, whether contributing or not, make the show worthwhile. And Patrick, what is our question for today? So this is a very interesting one. And I want to say thank you to all our patrons over on uh, AD History Patreon. You make the show possible in the way it is now. Paul has said more than enough about it, but I just want to say my extra thank you as well. And the random question we have this time is, what are some of the funniest or most bizarre events you've encountered in any of your historical research for the show or Otherwise, that's a cracking question. I've got one particular thing that's come to mind for me, Paul, and that has to be the dancing plague of the 16th century, I believe. It was sometime in the Middle Ages, yeah. Sometime in the Middle Ages where just everyone couldn't stop dancing for a, a period. I can't remember how long exactly it is. I've got the Wikipedia page opened here. A case of dancing mania in modern-day France, which between 50 and 400 people couldn't stop dancing for days. And I'm sure at the time, and if it would happen now, it'd be quite horrific, but you can't help but chuckle at it now. A dancing plague of dancing mania just swept the land. And it, it's just funny. It's, it's undoubtedly funny to our modern ears. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, in fact... Somebody who did a fantastic and hilarious video on this was Sam Onella of Sam Onella Academy. Now, he hasn't put out much in almost a year. Nobody knows why. Hope he's all right. But Sam, we need you back. Come back now, please. It's amazing stuff. Definitely go take a look at Sam Onella Academy's explanation of what Patrick is referring to. And <laughs> it is our gift to you, to be sure. So to answer this question... I mean, the possibilities are a legion, and these are just things that have come off the top of my mind that I think are kind of cool. But here's a few of them that I think are rather interesting. I always find it interesting when you think about disparate characters in history that you realize, oh, yeah, they were alive at the same time, and mm. then you find out they have some kind of relationship of whatever kind. I'm not talking necessarily a physical intimate one, but... <laughs> I think the one that tickles me most of that is, I believe I might be wrong, isn't it Lincoln and Queen Victoria were around at the same time? They were. In fact, there's an interesting intersection there's between the, the two yeah, of them. So there's the, a letter the, between two of them. It's not between Lincoln and uh, Queen Victoria. It's actually between Queen Victoria and Mary Todd Lincoln. Mm, so okay, af yeah. after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Queen Victoria sent a letter of condolence and sympathy to the widowed Mary Todd Lincoln. And we have the we have the letters. It's fantastic. And mm. it was very personal. And what's interesting is that was obviously Mary Todd Lincoln's response, because this was also at a time after the the death of Albert, which if you know anything about the history of Queen Victoria, mm. she never stopped grieving. You no. know, she her grieving lasted the entirety of her life. And for those who were living at the time, it quite literally, she was grieving to the point in which it was deafening. Yeah. I you know, can, yeah. she always came she out in black. Line. Oh, yeah. Apparently, she would even each day still lay out his clothes for him on the bed. <laughs> you know, we talk about royal matchings and how yeah. so often they're political and there's no real chemistry, no real genuine romantic love there. This is one of those exceptions. Another exception is actually, interestingly enough, George III and his wife. I think they had almost a dozen kids or something like that. you got to love someone to some extent to have a dozen kids with them. 
I'd like to think so. George III <laughs> is a is a difficult character in America because of the American Revolution, but yes, yeah, but so much of that is is overblown, and he's actually really very interesting. Apparently, he had something of a common touch. Uh, he mm. he was not huge on ceremony. He considered him, he was something of a gentleman farmer. If he was someone were to look that up, but yeah, and when Toshi responded, one of the most interesting parts of that response was, "I know that you can understand and empathize with my loss," referring, of course, to Albert. Yeah, but something that's fascinating is that the Tsarina Catherine the Great, as we now know her, actually had an extended correspondence with Voltaire. Now, that's something. You have Catherine the Great corresponding with one of the great figures of what we know as the Western European Enlightenment and connecting with him on an intellectual level while at the same time very much overseeing a system that was anything but democratic and very much respect for individual liberties and rights and agency. Serfdom was still going on at the time. And mm -hmm. serfdom, you know, for all intents and purposes, was a form of slavery. Let's call it what it is, mm -hmm. guys. So I find that sort of thing really fascinating, especially I, I like little inherent idiosyncratic and contradictory aspects of these people's personality. Another mm -hmm. one that's really fascinating that happened a bit later is there was one day where Napoleon and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe spent the day together. And it was one day they had both... Goethe, prior to a variety of things, was initially a supporter of Napoleon. Later, he became soured upon him. But they spent a day together, apparently, talking about all sorts of things. And if you know anything about Napoleon, Napoleon was a truly formidable intellect. Yeah, he wasn't just—Napoleon is stretched and distorted in history in many ways— but one thing that's undeniable, he was incredibly smart and a keen intellectual, read all the time. And he actually tried to convince Goethe to come to France, that we would have more support for what it is that you are doing. You know, I would love <laughs> to be a patron of your work. And so you hear about that interaction. And both of them, despite however Goethe may have felt later, really valued that day that they spent together. And I, th I think that's truly fascinating. Another one, this is actually going to be extremely fitting given our upcoming segment. So apparently mm. when Marcus Aurelius was writing the me his meditations, he was actually under the care of the fellow we're going to cover in our next segment, the world famous now physician Galen. And uh, Galen, as we'll find out, was very much one who had a strong grasp of er early pharmacology. And Marcus Aurelius was given a concoction that very prominently included juice from the the poppy plant. Mm. So he was in a state of euphoria and, and somnolence that is often characteristic as a side effect of an opiate-derived medication, despite the fact that, you know, he had to be dealing with wars, commodus just being commodus as a young man. I, I believe <laughs> even his wife was having an affair and it kind of gives an interesting insight into how he wrote that book. The other thing mm. that I find fascinating, and this is also kind of drug-related, kind of, definitely, is the role of the medication called Pervitin that was used by the Wehrmacht in World War II. And basically, the closest thing that you can relate this medication to from a pharmacological standpoint is crystal meth. But <laughs> you didn't 
from what I understand, it wasn't something that needed to be truly prescribed, and it kept soldiers awake, alert, and in generally good moods. And I got to tell you, when I'm in the middle of nowhere, southern Russia or Ukraine or wherever, doesn't matter if you're trying yeah. to assault Moscow or you're blowing up railroads on your retreat from Belarusia, they became quite dependent on it. And we know they did because you would see letters from soldiers at the front writing home requesting things. And one of the requests that you would see more often than not, hey, can you send more pervitin? <laughs> well, just the drugs were now illegal and very much frowned upon in our society. To see the role they had in the past is always fascinating. You always see like, in, like anything depicting the Old West, it's always like, hey, can I have a gram of cocaine? I've got a headache. It's, it's always stuff like that. And it's just like, it seems so out of place now, obviously, but that's what they thought was best for them in the past. Yeah, funny story just about that before we wrap the segment. Mm. So if you're familiar with the original canon of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, he's obviously a great user mm -hmm. of cocaine. Mm. The writer, director, producer... Nicholas Meyer, who is widely considered to have written the best Sherlock Holmes, not by Conan Doyle himself, The 7% Solution, which was both first a book that Meyer wrote and then actually managed to wing being the one who created the screenplay and directing it, and it was a hit movie. Mm. With The 7% Solution in general, he was getting some blowback because he's saying, oh, you turned Sherlock Holmes into a drug addict. And his response was, he was already yeah. a drug addict. Read the material. And of yeah. course, Nicholas Myers, 7% solution, yes. But he also was the one who, who wrote and directed by far the two best Star Trek movies ever created, <sighs> The Wrath of Khan and The Undiscovered Country. And naturally, we can never thank him enough for that. Nor can we thank enough our patrons for submitting to the AD History Podcast. Learn more about the benefits that await your generous support how you can help the show because you do help the show. It gives Patrick and I more tools, more ability to do the show at a higher quality. And when you help us reach that $100 a month level and over, we can finally begin hiring a third-party editor to help us with the show. And one thing that is undeniable, we'll get into more detail later, every episode that, in this case, averages 90 minutes. It, we are talking easily 25 to 30 hours in post-production. These are long episodes. They take a lot of effort to do them the way they want to do them. But the fact of the matter is, it is our goal to bring somebody in who does this sort of stuff for a living and leave us to what we do best, which is research and give you history. Consider donating at $3 a month or higher you will be helping the show immeasurably in addition to many benefits, including at the $5 tier or higher, submitting a question that we will answer on air. But us here, you there, we'll be right back after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. 
Also, check out the AD History podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Paul, before we dive into your section here, we just need to say a huge thank you because we hit our first big milestone on AD History's YouTube channel, one thousand subscribers and that's an incredible thing it warms my heart to know that 1000 people enjoy AD history enough to subscribe to the channel on you to subscribe to the podcast on youtube and as someone who runs a separate youtube channel i remember the excitement of hitting a thousand subscribers on name explain and it's so great to see that excitement again with another channel it means the world to us thank you all so much for joining us on there if you're not subscribed on there go subscribe on there guys like you get like it's more than just your normal podcast on YouTube type situation going on there. We have some wonderful like clip, clips from uh, older episodes on there that you can listen uh, watch in a vacuum. And Paul, you do an amazing job on those videos on the channel. You add so many extra nice visuals to the beginning of them and extra bits like that. It's it's very much a worthwhile experience to check out, even if you're just a fan of listening to us. As I say, and Patrick, I know you're. In a way, you're getting to relive the experience that you had the first time with Name Explain. And mm. as far as I can understand and everything I've seen is that the first big milestone for any channel, and we're not a traditional channel, I grant you, but they say a thousand subscribers is your first thousand, that is, is the hardest to get. And we couldn't do it without you all tuning in, joining us, subscribing, smashing the ding dong, as it were. <laughs> and enjoying every episode and giving such excellent, thoughtful contributions through your comments. I really like the folks that have come out and supported us on YouTube. It's a lot of fun. Obviously, we're available wherever podcasts are found, but YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world, owned by the first largest search engine in the world, and it's a big deal. We couldn't do it without you, and thank you all so much for that. Yes, and thank you once again. And now, Paul, it's time for your segment of the show, and you were looking in depth of a figure we've actually already talked about on the podcast, but you want to look more about the man himself as opposed to just his actions. And Paul, you have the floor. Oh, oh, he's stealing my lines, guys. Stealing he's stealing line. my thought, line. I he's stealing my time. fucking line. <laughs> I okay. thought it was funny time I start using it as well. <laughs> I love it. No, you use the hell out of it. Okay, so, quote, a good physician is also a philosopher, close quote. Those are the words of Galen of Pergamon. And yes, Patrick, we have discussed him somewhat in our podcast, especially when we're talking about the Antonine Plague. But that is just an absolute grain of sand compared to who Galen was and his influence in medicine ever since. So, I think it is best to set the scene. In the late 120s AD, Galen's father, a very successful architect, had a dream. And in that dream... Galen's father was visited by Asclepius, and Asclepius was the Roman Greco god of healing. 
And he said to Galen's father that your son must become a physician. He must become a doctor. Now, to modern ears and eyes, Patrick, undoubtedly we would say to ourselves, you had, you had a dream from a god and you're, and you're following it? What? Yeah. But that's not how it works here. No, no, definitely not. No, the, um, the gods had much more sway in the lives of people back then. Oh, by, by far, to be sure. Mm. Because in, in the Greco-Roman world, in their pantheon of gods, they are active players. They have motivations. They have things they want to see. You can piss them off and fear their wrath, the whole thing. But mm. one of the things interesting is that communication, in this case, often came through dreams. And while, you know, the Greco-Roman gods weren't exactly these all-knowing, all-seeing deities that were moving us all around like pieces on the metaphysical checkboard, it is believed that they did intervene in mortal corporeal events. And in this case, Asclepius comes to his father and says, your son has to become a doctor. And boy, howdy, did he listen to that <laughs> advice. And so when we're talking about Galen, you can't talk about Galen in a vacuum. There has to be some context here to what he did and, and where he worked and how he operated. And so here's something of a brief history that we need to discuss, which is the history of medicine in the ancient Mediterranean world. And there's a lot to it, but let's, let's boil it down for you, is that for the most part, when it came to this region of the world, the first great doctors, they first started out in Mesopotamia, but more, more than even that, the ancient Egyptians had very famous doctors. A lot of what they did, some of them, that I should say, worked in the realm of trying to invoke the supernatural, stuff that we wouldn't mm. really consider today as something we would consider to be medicine. That's certainly not in the current Western tradition. But they also did acquire a great deal of practical knowledge and apparently had a very good public health system. And at its height, even neighboring powers would write to a pharaoh and ask for some of his legendary doctors. But over time, especially with the decline of what we know as the absolute reach of ancient civilization regarding the Egyptians, this ended up being transferred to Greece, where that's where the great doctors were coming from. And there is no doctor that is more famous than Hippocrates. Mm. And in the case of Hippocrates, you've obviously heard of the Hippocratic Oath, which, among other clauses to it, states, do no harm which is an absolute fundamental basis of what we consider to be valid, credible, authoritative modern medicine. We're not always able to live up to it, but that's the goal. That's the point. Yeah, it's amazing that doctors of today are still taking uh, words from pretty much a thousand years ago. They're still taking these words to oath, literally. They're taking the Hippocratic Oath themselves. It, it truly is amazing. But he didn't, it was more than that when it came to Hippocrates. He was the first one to define a, a number of conditions, terminologies, and diagnostic methods. Like, for example, terms like chronic, acute, relapse, epidemic, all of that's coming right out of Hippocrates and his followers. One of the things that he's most famous for among many, you could literally do a whole podcast on Hippocrates, but he did a lot of things in terms of being able to define diagnoses, and he was one of the first who really was interested in a complete medical history of the patient 
And this is a big deal. You'd think that'd be such an obvious thing to do to make sh- to try and figure out what happened to the patient in the past. To us, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've, we don't know yeah. different. You know, that, that's, that's one of the things that's so incredible about it. And for the most part, going to the point now where we're in the late second century, if you can believe it, the doctors of Galen's day didn't really resemble what we know today as doctors because they came from every class and strata of society. And believe me, not all of them were made equal. Not all of them received extensive medical training. You could have slaves that would do it. You could have actual professional doctors who could do it. You know, you could have various priests and priestesses are very much part of medical practice in, in certain cases. But Galen, in a way, shatters all of that. So naturally, he became a physician at the encouragement of his follower. And, and of course, Galen was born in the late 120s AD. And when his father died, when Galen was roughly 19 years old, he ends up following his father's encouragement. And he began actually reading what text he could find that of that time of Hippocrates. And he became a zealous reader and archivist of the text that he believed Hippocrates actually wrote. And this followed him throughout his life. And so when he began his medical training, luckily he was quite well off because his father was a successful architect working in Pergamon. And for those of you who aren't familiar, at the time that Galen is alive and he was born Pergamon, which is in modern-day Turkey, had become a boom city. And it was a real intellectual center, a great place to have a furtive young mind. That's why his father was there. And he made quite a bit of money. And when he inherited this, he followed his father's encouragement. And it took him in a variety of places around the ancient Mediterranean world. But the place that was most important that he ended up was in Alexandria in Egypt. And you probably picked this apart of this podcast by now, but if there was a 1 and 1A in terms of major capitals in the ancient Mediterranean world that we have covered, number one is Rome and 1A is Alexandria. You might be familiar with the Library of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. It was a bustling Eastern capital that had an extremely famous medical school that Galen attended. And the interesting thing about Galen is, is that he was a prolific writer. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. And in his writings, he always seemed to be bits of personal asides about experiences or thoughts or whatever it is that was going on in his mind that kind of chronicles his life. And so when he gets there, he doesn't like the place. He doesn't like the weather. He doesn't like the people. He doesn't like his teachers. But he stays and he learns a great deal. And one of the greatest things that he learned in that time was what we would call today pharmacology. Big believer in medications, obviously through natural means like plants and and roots and various things like that, that he would make into certain concoctions to treat certain conditions. Some of them were very effective. I'm sure other ones were garbage and did nothing, but we're a long way today from the pharmacological world that we live in. But he definitely was a pioneer of these things. And this medical schooling that he had that obviously was topped off most significantly in Alexandria lasted for the period of a decade. A decade. That's now, Paul, if you remember, that's normally about the time like current doctors tend to uh, train for. It's normally sort of around 10 years. It's a fairly long time. Was that not the norm back for Galen, I imagine? That wasn't the norm for him. Definitely not. So Galen, in many ways, is 
kind of a primordial model for what we know as Western medicine and the system that most of us are accustomed to. If you go and see a doctor, there was a today, for whatever reason, hopefully you're well, it's just a checkup during these incredible times, but you know for a fact that they have a license, that they got their education somewhere, and that it is you take on well-founded, formalized credibility that they know what they're talking about. Some doctors are better than others, but you know that they are generally competent. And in the ancient world, this is a very unusual. So today, you go to undergrad, and you know, you're pre-med, you can be in any number of majors that do that, but essentially you end up having to take organic chemistry. Then you study and pass the MCAT. Then you get into a medical school. You graduate medical school, you get your internship. Then you become a resident. Then you become a senior resident. Then if you have some kind of specialization, you begin to a residency for that. You're talking 10 years. And if you're in the United States, quite quite a few student loans. You never really stop learning. I think that's the general consensus as well with modern medicine. You always got some something you need to study out for and learn about. And that very much was Galen as well, because mm. Galen never stopped learning. He never stopped researching. And we'll get into his research in a bit. So once he completes this odyssey of medical education, he actually ends up returning to his home of Pergamon. And his first real significant gig was actually serving as a doctor for the local gladiators. And we can only take his word on it because he's the one who is giving us this information. But apparently he was very successful at it. During his few years doing it, he had lost something only like five gladiators. And he did a good job of keeping them healthy, keeping them on their feet because he looked at things like nutrition. He took a lot of time to better and more closely study anatomy, which we can get to in a bit as well. And in this case, there's a great economic motivation for the gladiators, which is to say, if one for whatever reason becomes unable to fight or die, getting quality gladiators costs a lot of money. So by having a good doctor like Galen there, the economic incentive and benefit for those who are putting on the games is considerable. And he develops quite a reputation. And he also takes the chance to better learn. When he sees wounds and he's tending to wounds, he always refers to them as looking into a window of the body. Wow. Like that, that is such, I think that really shows the different mindsets doctors have. I'm always sort of saying to myself, how can people be doctors? I'd be so terrified and grossed out to be doing that. It just shows that it's such a different mindset to be confident enough to do that and just to see a wound and see it as a gateway to explore and to not want to just be grossed out by it. I just, find that incredible. It really is. And it's a window he needed. But once again, we'll get into that in a bit. So eventually, by about 162, Galen, who might add, was also very ambitious, mm. decided that he needed to go to the big show. He was going to move to Rome. And in 162, that is exactly what he did. But almost as soon as he got there, based on his rather contentious personality. He made a lot of enemies for a lot of reasons. One is he was a big self-promoter, which you had to be. Mm. That's just the reality of the world he was living in. Two, he was very impatient and intolerant of other doctors and their practices because a lot of times he thought it was nonsense. And on top of that, in his first year, he actually had to go back to Pergamon because he was actually fearful for his life based on the kind of enemies and reputation he had built, despite the fact he also had a reputation for being a really good doctor. So he takes off likely in fear of his life. But he ends up getting recalled in 165 or 166 to evaluate 
the Antonine Plague in Rome. And one of the reasons he's recalled to do so is because it was known that he had seen things similar to this before. And so much of our credible authoritative knowledge of the Antonine Plague and what it meant medically is coming from one of the many writings and observations that Galen took down, which is fascinating because we could talk about the Antonine Plague in mm. the way that we did yeah. without that historical contribution. But he didn't stay long. Initially, in his little autobiographical sides, he said one of the reasons he took off at the time had to do with conflicts with other doctors. But many years later, he wrote again in one of those asides that, in fact, in reality, he was just terrified. Yeah, fair. Because the doctors were usually the first ones to die mm. because they're the ones that had to go in and do the hard work. And this is kind of the calm before the storm, as it were, in terms of his famous and infamous reach in history medically. Mm. Because in 169, Galen was summoned to Rome again by none other than the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. And initially what Marcus wanted was for Galen to join him and Lucius Verus, the co-emperor, his adoptive brother, they were adopted together by Antoninus Pius, to join them on campaign. They were dealing with the issues on the Danube with the Germanic tribes that would plague Rome for a long time. And he was obviously summoned to him. And after his initial meeting with Marcus Aurelius, apparently he had a dream again where none other than Asclepius came to Galen and said, do not follow him on campaign. You are needed in Rome. And next time he saw Marcus Aurelius, told him that I, I had a dream from Asclepius that I should not join you. I cannot join you. And Marcus Aurelius is interesting because he has such a incredible personality, very thoughtful, contemplative, rational, someone that's worthy of admiration, especially if you're within the context of his world, to be sure. And very thoughtfully said, well, then we, we can't go against that. But this is what you're going to do instead. You're going to remain in Rome, and you are going to attend my son, Commodus. Now, you get to the center of power, the most powerful human being in one of the greatest ancient superpowers humanity has ever known. You get this dream, you stay, and what is your reward? Looking out for that little jerk. Yeah, yeah, not the not the best reward. Hell no. My God. That is awful. And he does this. And this is really kind of the big, one of his really big moments, to be sure. These are Galen's classic hits. But the real question here has a lot to do with his contributions to medicine. Contributions to medicine that were prominent, that were paramount up until the 19th century. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, we're talking about easily like 15, 1600 years mm. of influence beyond his, his actual life. So what were his true contributions to medicine? This is the part that I find the, the, the real crux of it all. This is where it gets fun. In this case, as I mentioned earlier, he was a doctor, yes. And of course, you never stop learning, as you mentioned, Patrick. But he was also a prolific researcher on top of it all. His biggest advances came in the area of anatomy and physiology and had to do specifically with 
regarding and defining and accurately describing the functions of various parts of the human body and how they worked. But he had a significant handicap that we do not experience today, and that was it was absolutely 100% forbidden to do an autopsy on a dead human being. Was that a religious thing? Was that like, we can't look into how humans work? Do you know why autopsies on humans weren't allowed? I, I would say it's probably partially religious, cultural. There are still customs today that don't allow an autopsy. Mm. A lot of times it comes out of religion. Sometimes it's just purely cultural. Not for us, really. Not you and I, yeah. I should say. No. Cut me open and see what's going on inside there. Yeah, where <laughs> there has it. to be a, a really, really good reason for it to happen if they allow it to happen at all. So I'm assuming it's partially religious, to be sure. I mean, I, it's kind of mm. hard to imagine it wouldn't be. So that's an incredible handicap if you're trying to make huge advances and strides in human anatomy and physiology. So he had to find other ways of studying the things that he wanted to study. And so how did he work around this? Well, he did dissection and grossly enough, though not at all a surprise, vivisections of animals of all kinds, most notably on primates, because Galen very aptly recognized the similarities that exist between Homo sapiens and many primates. That's probably one of the most incredible things here, I would argue, that such a modern, that's the concept of humans being related to primates to be similar to primates, that's that's something that would only come to light in a more logical way like thousands of years later with uh, Darwin. And to see someone this far back making those realizations is incredible. Oh, oh, it absolutely is. Totally incredible. This guy was truly brilliant. And let's put it this way. He knew it, and he wanted you to know it, which is one of the reasons why mm, yeah. so many people disliked him. Uh, in fact, in terms of his actual mention by other histories and contemporaneous ones, there really isn't any. A lot of the speculation has been because they thought he was kind of a dick. Maybe they were right, but it is totally beyond the point. So in this case, he's doing it, and he's doing it mostly on primates. And there are many breakthroughs that he made that are still relevant and would be highly influential for a long time. Like, for example, accurately in describing the workings of the spinal column, because it was so often noticed that paralysis often came with an injury to the spinal column, which, of course, is part of the grand network. And in this case, the main, for all intents and purposes, channel of the central nervous system. He also had advances in the understanding of the circulatory and pulmonary system, as well as the nature and importance for many portions of the musculature. And he also pioneered various surgical operations, including some we perform today with essentially the same method, specifically having to do with cataract surgery. Gosh. Who would want a cataract surgery in the ancient world? My God. That, 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 that sounds so awful. We didn't come up with general anesthesia until the late 19th century, and we did it by accident. It was a dentist who figured out ether was an excellent one, where he could knock him out, get rid of pain, and then when person comes to, they're like, what happened? So we didn't even have that. And it's even more harrowing to know that cataract surgery basically hasn't changed since ancient Rome. No, no, it hasn't. It really hasn't. So here's the thing, though, about these breakthroughs. Some of the things he got fundamentally right. But because he's working on other animals, like, for example, once it's really disgusting to think about a vivisection of a pig, 
He's figuring out all of these sort certain things, or in the case of the primates, figuring out how certain muscles work or how our voice operates. The problem was that, especially even with the primates, they're not a direct copy of us or else they'd be us. So there are differences. So when you start getting centuries down the road and the idea of an autopsy is far more accepted, they begin realizing, oh, okay, he was kind of right. But essentially, he was having to work in a less than ideal form in terms of his methodology of research. But for what he did figure out, it was quite incredible. In addition to the fact, when he had to perform various surgeries, which also I believe includes portions having to do with a few different arteries as well, he was very pioneering in this respect, he had to use it once again as a window into the body. Because that's what he had. And the fact of the matter is we've been doing surgeries of all kinds for millennia. Mm. If anybody is familiar with the concept of trepanning, you notice how when we find archaeological yeah. digs, even even for those who are hominins but not homo sapiens, and you see these very, very deliberate circles in their skull, they're, per they're performing really rudimentary <sighs> brain surgery. It's nasty, Gosh. but we've been doing it forever. But Galen really begins reining this in. And throughout, he also is always looking to Hippocrates because one of the things that is interesting about Galen and his mode of operation is he's looking at a bigger picture. And when he talks about a good doctor is also a philosopher, it means getting a full relevant history. It means bringing in all these various elements that are involved in the proper health of a patient. On top of that, he also, obviously, he had and was raised and maintained a very vivid and influential spiritual life, which mm. he never abdicated. It was always a part of the greater picture to Galen. But in the case of Galen, and this has a lot to do with why we're talking about him today, is that in 189, he produced one of his most famous treatises, which was On the Temperaments. When we start talking about the temperaments, the first thing you have to look at is what we know as humorous. This is something that was very much promoted by Hippocrates. And the whole idea behind a humorist is that they have four main humors. So they're very interested in the fluids of the body. And they describe the four as black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. Ultimately, the big idea here is, though it remained very influential and relevant until about the 19th century in regards to medicine, it was about keeping a balance of those four. And if there was an imbalance, that it would lead to certain conditions. That's how they understood it. If you have any knowledge of medicine, you'll understand why. And I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to try. But ultimately, that was the idea. And they wanted to achieve something that was known as eucrasia, which is the balance of these fluids. <laughs> and this also very much ties in to something that he we, they called the temperaments. And the idea was generally known as as followed. And this is certainly Galen's hypothesis, which was he was searching for a correlation between the temperaments and the aforementioned four humors. And he generally believed most people were some blending of the four and fell into a spectrum of what they call warm, cool, wet, dry. And there are four main temperaments that you need to know. One is sanguine, one is choleric, one is melancholic, and the other is phlegmatic. And in the case of sanguine, sanguines are your classic extroverts. 
life of the party, always want to talk, good mood, energetic. They love meeting people. If you're an extrovert, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The other, of course, is choleric, which there are similarities between choleric and the sanguine. The big differences, however, is that they're very independent, very ambitious, and they're natural leaders. As far as melancholic, they're really more of introverted analyticals. They tend to keep to themselves more. They're they're very interested in information and detail and, and think of things in a very technical sense. They can't get enough information. They're very thoughtful when it comes to evaluating the world and whatever situation it is that they're encountering. And the other, of course, is phlegmatic, which is the amiable, easy to get along with, has a natural ability to compromise and is very fluid in regards to what the world needs from them. And then it's very much in line with that temperament. And the way that Galen saw is that it should be a blend of the four. And he always wanted to try to establish a correlation between the four humors and these four temperaments. But the fact of the matter is, and this is the thing about Galen, not only is he making these amazing breakthroughs that are still relevant to this day, but he was a prolific writer and publisher. Millions of words. Millions of words <laughs> that he did through a whole life. Having scribes to, that can take dictation from him. Treatises, books, you name it. The problem is, Patrick, is that a great deal of them were lost in a fire. I no. believe, <laughs> if I understand from scholars today, only about 20% of his work still exists. And I'm not sure if this is just a calculation from all that we thought he had, but I'm pretty sure this is what the way it works. So in terms of actual texts that we have from Greek authors and sources, and in this case, Galen largely would have been considered Greek, 10% of that, literally going back 3,000 years, 10% of all of that amazing work that comes out of ancient Greek that includes Aristotle, it includes Plato, all of these guys. 10% of it is Galen. Wow, that's not bad, is it? He he wrote a hell of a lot, and he seems to be, I would say, somewhat underappreciated. I think if you asked the average person to name some uh, famous Greeks and like important figures from ancient Greece, they would probably say the likes of Aristotle and Plato and um, maybe even Hippocrates, but Galen just wouldn't come up all that much and it's just i guess it's something of a shame that that isn't the case it's great that we get to sh uh, share his work here it's very much a modern phenomenon because like i said he he was very influential up to and including the 19th century now there was a brief period in the early middle ages when we started having trouble with people that knew both latin and greek so there were less people that were able mm. to actually take from that so eventually something they overcame and really what ended up moving him to the back seat, as it were, is, of course, the discovery of germs, which we didn't come up mm. with until the 19th century, which is a total game changer, right? You learn about germs, viruses, germs all of that. to the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how we're only working with a certain and very small piece of the picture here, even back in Galen's time. But his diagnostic methods his knowledge and reverse engineering through what basically are similar creatures to ourselves in terms of anatomy and physiology and being very effective as a doctor in many respects. 
And it's interesting because I mentioned this briefly before, the most of the things that we know about Galen came from Galen because so few people actually mentioned him. And you kind of get the feeling that he was brilliant, but he was also a jerk. Nothing new about that. And one of the reasons we even take it as credible is because of the kind of breakthroughs that he had that we know are the truth today. And the chances are that since he was so ambitious and intolerant of people that he did not consider to be real doctors, it certainly did not help him out that. And you know, there were some issues with the fact that he chose to charge high fees, things of that nature, all part of the equation. But something that is interesting about Galen Patrick, because we were talking about what doctors were like of the ancient world. So in the case of Galen, because he's quite wealthy, is in a higher strata of society. But what's interesting, especially as being a doctor, he was literally willing to do all of the dirty work himself, which is something that was pretty rare in that time and place. So he took this very seriously. You know, healing was his thing. There's no question that we've only hit the tip of the iceberg. But the fact of the matter is a guy who lives and his work hanging out and influencing medicine for 1,500 years at this point is something that's very difficult to ignore. And Patrick, I imagine you at least have a few questions for me. Something I'm curious about, and it's it's a part of ancient healing. I'm, for some reason, morbidly fascinated with. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's the act of bloodletting and leeches. I was wondering if you knew much about Galen's use of leeches. Is that something he was for or against? I imagine, as a humorist, blood being one of the things he felt was of vital importance, I imagine he would have been a fan of the old sticking a leech on someone and see what sees what happens. Do you know if there's any evidence of that? I did not come across any of his talk mm. about the use of <laughs> leeches. That's something that lived well into the 20th century, and I think yeah. some places is even still being done now. I did not see that, but I, I would definitely say it wouldn't surprise me. You know, that, <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. He was very ingenious in many ways, in terms of how he chose to treat patients. But there's no question about it that in many cases he was extremely successful. And not just an amazing personality, but an amazing figure that really stretches so incredibly far. So as a humorist, I, I would imagine it's possible, but I don't recall coming across that being a treatment that he prescribed, but it wouldn't surprise the hell out of me in the least. Something you mentioned there about how long-lasting his influence was, and forgive me if this is too big of a question, but what do you say? Like, I'm kind of tempted to say this myself. He's perhaps one of the ancient Greeks whose influence lasted the longest. I know obviously there are others of this time period that like you could argue the teachings of Aristotle or Plato is still important today, but that's literally in a philosophical sense. In a more practical sense, do you think he had perhaps one of the longest lasting impacts of the ancient Greeks? Well, we'll narrow the context here a little bit. As far as the actual medical world is concerned, he's only second to Hippocrates. Mm. Of course. As far as the rest are concerned, in certain circles, obviously, he holds more sway than others. I think most people have heard or are familiar with some kind of idea that came out of Plato or Aristotle to be sure, and by extension, Socrates through Plato, if you will. Yes, within certain competencies, within certain interests, though, as you had mentioned before, because he's kind of fallen out, most people wouldn't know who this guy was, but they really should, because yeah, yeah. he was absolutely critical. And even though we know today that some of what he wrote down wasn't entirely accurate, some extremely accurate, 
and coming up with a variety of surgeries and working within the boundaries that were incredibly difficult given what he was trying to do. I really wish more people knew about him because this is an incredible thing. We think today about surgery. You and I have both had surgeries. Mm. You go in, you know you're surrounded by true professionals that are extremely knowledgeable. It is a highly technical process. You have general anesthesia. You wake up, you're probably in pain, depending on what it is. We know how to treat that. We have physical therapy. We have very specific medications. All of that, not here. Galen was nurse, pharmacist, possibly anesthesiologist, surgeon. He was everything in one. And we all owe him an incredible debt of gratitude because he took the idea of medicine and what it could be and the understandings that were necessary and laid a huge foundational block for the medicine that we so confidently and consistently trust today. Every doctor you've ever encountered, depending on what your medical history may be, in some way, in a very distant respect, albeit, is most certainly influenced by Galen. And do I know if he if he's really up there? Realistically, he should be. In the popular mm. historical imagination, I'm guessing not. But when you account for 10% of all the literature that we have from a sweep of ancient Greek civilization, I would really hope so. <laughs> Because that is prolific. And obviously he wrote on a number of things because he was also a self-proclaimed philosopher. But it is that quote, a good doctor should also be a philosopher. But I would add an addendum to that. A good doctor is not a healer unless they are a good philosopher. And that is what I have for you here today, Patrick. Thank you so much, Paul, for opening our eyes more to uh, Galene. Really incredible stuff to see how, how important this guy was in ancient history, in ancient Greece, and his help in Rome, of course. Naturally. And because this is AD history and we're building that tapestry to the HD world, I don't believe that you can truly appreciate our HD world in looking back into history, into past events, into our posterity, and the role that medicine plays in our life, especially today, and not take a long extended look and a tip of the hat to Galen of Pergamon. And we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which if you are on YouTube... We will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes available wherever podcasts are found. 
Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.